Is the Bible just like Game of Thrones, except if you don't read it, you go to hell? And speaking of hell, does anyone really believe in a place of eternal torment? Or is that just a fable pastors preach to scare people into becoming Christians? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're going to be exploring the TikToks of Abraham Piper. And if you haven't heard, Abraham Piper, son of the extremely well-known author and preacher John Piper, is a TikTok sensation. In fact, Abraham Piper currently has nearly one million followers. Yet unlike his father, Abraham isn't defending and promoting Christianity, he's mocking it, especially evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity. Here's just a sampling of what Piper has to say. Evangelicalism is a toddler tradition that's cousins with Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and the snot-nosed little sibling of mainline Protestant denominations. So yes, I'm out here saying fundamentalism is bizarre, anti-intellectual So as you can tell, Abraham Piper doesn't pull any punches, but how should we as Christians respond to his attacks on the Bible, hell, missions, and just a whole range of topics that we as Christians hold dear? Well, that's what I'll be exploring in this podcast with leading apologist Dr. Michael Brown. And I think you'll find that not only does Dr. Brown have credible answers to the questions and the claims that Piper makes, he also has a really tender and humble heart, especially towards skeptics. So I'm really looking forward to discussing these TikToks with Dr. Brown. But before I do, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Judson University and Marquardt of Barrington. Judson is a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience. Experience. Plus, the school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcourt of Barrington. Marcourt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcourt, are men of integrity. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me today is Dr. Michael Brown, a leading Christian apologist and the founder of Ask Dr. Brown Ministries and the Fire School of Ministry. Dr. Brown also hosts a nationally syndicated radio talk show, as well as TV shows on God TV, Me TV, and NRB TV. But perhaps most importantly, I found Dr. Brown is more than just a knowledgeable resource. He's someone who's compassionate towards skeptics. And perhaps that's because Dr. Brown used to be a heroin shooting, LSD using, Jewish drummer in a rock band, and he understands skeptics. He loves skeptics, and he's not afraid of the tough questions. So Dr. Brown, welcome and so glad to speak with you again. Oh, great to be with you, Julie. Always is. So, Dr. Brown, you're going to be on the hot seat today, and what I'm going to do is play several of Abraham Piper's TikToks attacking different aspects of the Christian faith, and then I'm going to ask you to respond to that. But before I do that, I'd love for you to tell a bit about your own faith journey so people know where you're coming from. So would you give me like the three to four minute version of your own journey to faith and how you came to know Christ? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's quite relevant, as as your listeners will see. So I was born in 1955 in New York City. My dad was the senior lawyer in the New York Supreme Court. Mom and dad, both Jewish, happily married. We moved to Long Island when I was about seven years old. I started playing drums when I was eight years old. Beatles came to America when I was nine years old. So this is just kind of the culture of the day. I was born mitzvah in 1968 at the age of 13. 
but we were not religious Jews. So this was, this was like a special thing to do. And it was more of a big social event than a spiritual event. Hmm. And then what happened was uh, that same year, I, I went to my first rock concert. I saw Jimi Hendrix in concert. And that, that appealed to me and playing drums and wanting to be in a rock band and kind of the breaking of the rules and, and the whole craziness of the day. I got caught up in it. When I was 14, a friend asked me if I wanted to try smoking pot. And I thought, well, you know, the, the rock stars do it. And plus you're not supposed to. So that, that mm-hmm. illicit appeal, you know, Proverbs says that stolen water is sweet and, and food eaten in secret is delicious. And when you're not supposed to have it, it has that appeal. And I quickly got into heavier drugs. The the lighter drugs that everyone was doing didn't really affect me. So I got into heavier drugs and that became part of my identity being this heavy drug using kid. By the time I was 15, I was shooting heroin. I got the nicknames drug bear and iron man. I thought, this is it. I'm living the life I want to live, getting high, playing drums in a rock band, going to rock concerts. And of course, you know, that, that illusory feeling of everything going great is, is a myth when it comes to drugs. And so 16 years old, my two best friends, fellow band members, <clears throat> like these two girls, these girls are attending a little gospel preaching church, Pentecostal church. So they, they talked about healing, miracles. The girls started going. They weren't living for God, but they started going because their dad had been praying for them. Their uncle was the pastor. And it was Pentecostal. So that was like kind of interesting and different. And my friends started to go to hang out with the girls. And, and they found that interesting as well and then the pastor was preaching a lot from the book of revelation and end time stuff so they come home from church we'd be hanging out getting high together and they'd be telling about what they learned from the bible but then little by little god started to change them Hmm. so i thought okay i've got to go and pull them out and that was august of 71 so with all my pride and rebellion and anger and drug addictions you know everything in my life I go to this church service, long-haired hippie kid, and the, the people were so sweet, loving, gracious to me. I thought, whatever. They have their religion. I have mine. But they started praying for me. I had no idea they were praying for me. And the Holy Spirit started convicting me. I, I felt miserable about the way I was living. And by the end of that year, I just knew in my heart, I knew Jesus was real. I knew he died for me. I knew he rose from the dead. His love filled my life. And I said, God, I will never put a needle in my arm again. That was December 17th of 71, was free from that day on. And then my dad said, Michael, that's great. Great, you're off drugs, but we're Jews. We don't believe this. Hmm. You need to talk to the local rabbi. So right out of the gate, brand new believer, I'm meeting with this learned rabbi. He's about 11 years older than me, fresh out of Jewish Theological Seminary, begins to lovingly challenge what I believe, brings me to meet other rabbis. So from day one, what I believe was challenged. And I remember him telling me, because I was memorizing verses in English and reading the Bible in English. He said, if you don't know Hebrew, it's meaningless. You got to learn Hebrew. Hmm. So when I started college, I I started studying Hebrew in college. They only had modern Hebrew. So I taught myself biblical. That's what got me on the the way to the PhD in Semitic languages was being challenged by the rabbis. So, and then all of my education was in secular universities. So Queens College and then NYU for my master's and PhD. So I never studied with anyone who agreed with me. And here and there, some of the professors were downright hostile and they were brilliant and they challenged my views of scripture. So I I was exposed to that from day one, my faith being challenged. And I knew that Jesus had changed my life and I knew he was real in my life at the same time. I knew that if I was on the side of truth, that it could withstand scrutiny. It could withstand testing. So I determined, okay, I'm going to take these challenges seriously. I'm going to study. 
I'm going to look at the objections. In fact, I'm going to read about the objections. I'm going to expose myself to them more. I'm going to challenge what I believe to say, okay, is it true or not? Is it accurate or not? And the more I studied, the more my mind was in harmony with my heart, the more I saw, hey, there, there's solid answers for all these things. And then where my own experience didn't seem to line up with scripture, I thought, okay, I have to pursue that as well. Should I believe what I believe about healing? Should I believe what I believe about the things of the spirit? Everything can be challenged if, if we're truly seeking the truth. And, and, and that's why I've, I've been involved in apologetics and defense of the faith these decades, because because I've seen we have solid answers for the skeptics, for the mockers, for those with sincere questions, for the whole range of things, philosophical and scientific and biblical and historical and theological and moral. There's a reason that the Bible has stood the test of time. Hmm. And it's interesting listening to your journey is almost the flip of Abraham Piper's journey, because here he started out in a Christian home where faith was emphasized, it was strong. Yours, on the other hand, you started out without any faith and sort of sowing your oats young, but then came back to the Lord. But the thing that I, I love about you is that because I think you've had this journey where you had your faith pushed against so hard, you're not afraid of skeptics and you're not afraid of the questions. And so I, I feel like you come, come at it with a compassion towards them. And I think maybe as evangelicals, sometimes we can feel kind of threatened and that comes out kind of ugly in a way, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I feel like I feel like he's very honest. What he says is, you know, blasphemous at times. It's, it's offensive at times. Yet at the same time, I think he's expressing what a lot of people feel. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving in. And, and I hope as we go through this that we can, you know, keep somewhat of an, an open mind towards him and towards those who are like him, who I'm sure will be listening as well as uh, people who are evangelical. So um, let me just play some of these TikToks and give you an opportunity to respond to them. But the first one is one where he actually speaks and gives advice to those who are living with their evangelical parents right now. So take a listen. I want to say something quickly to a very small subset of my audience, namely young people who still live with their evangelical parents but find themselves doubting the faith that they were raised in. I know that can be a stressful situation and I want to offer you one simple fact and just hope that it's helpful. Here it is. It couldn't be more straightforward. It is not disrespectful for you to disagree with your parents. Don't let anyone make you feel bad for following your own curiosity instead of their lack of curiosity. That's manipulative. Sure, it might be hurtful that you're on your own path, but that's on them. If someone's offended that you're thinking for yourself, that's only their responsibility. If you're kind and fair, but also take ownership of your own mind and follow your own thoughts, even if they lead away from your parents' religion, that's not rebellious. You can't change how they're gonna respond or react, but you can know inside yourself that you're all right. You're all right. Oh, there's so much more that could be said, but I'm out of time. Come along for more if you think that'd be helpful. Hmm. So that's Abraham Piper's advice to young people. And I know as a parent, I listen to that. And there's a part of me that says, oh, God, help me not to be that parent, right? <laughs> Who responds so threatened that a kid doesn't feel safe to ask those questions. But let's just start there. Speak to these evangelicals who they grew up evangelical, but now they're having all these questions. What do you say to those people that are in that camp right now? Yeah, so I, I partially agree with what Abraham said, but I partially disagree. The, the reason that I partially agree is that having questions is not rebellious. Look, if, if someone was raised in a Muslim home or a traditional Jewish home or a Buddhist home, 
or Hindu home, I, I would want them to have questions. If they were raised in an atheist home, I'd want them to have questions. So the idea that you can't question what your parents believe would, would almost suggest that whatever a parent believes must be true. So in that regard, yeah, you can, with respect to your parents, say, look, you're my mom and dad. I, I honor you and I respect you, but I have questions. I'm not sure if I believe this. Well, there, there's nothing disrespectful in that attitude. When he mentions the parents' lack of curiosity, it may not be lack of curiosity. It may be they went on their journey. They, they, they did their searching, and they, they know why they believe what they believe, and they're dogmatic about it, and they feel these are life and death issues, and they're raising their kids in there. So there's that judgmental element of referring to their lack of, of curiosity. But here's the key. The parents have to be secure enough in what they believe that they're not threatened by their children's questions or curiosity. Hmm. I have been around all too many spiritual leaders and elders who are threatened by questions, who are threatened by doubt. And the moment you raise, they get mad at you or they judge you or you don't ask those kind of questions and there's something wrong with you. And, and for Abraham to push back against that, I, I believe is the right thing to do. So what I would encourage young people to do is to appeal to their parents and, and say, look, I'm not trying to be rebellious. I'm not trying to pick a fight. I just don't know if I believe this. I don't, I don't know if I believe the Bible is really the, the, the word of God or if, if Jesus really did. I, I have honest questions. And could you help me sort this out? If, if you come to a parent like that, unless there's just something wrong with, with the way they're parenting, they should say, okay, let's, let's find this out together. And then we as a body have to help them know where resources are, where they can get answers. And, and there's a verse in Jude in fact, I turned this verse into a chapter. My, my newest book, Has God Failed You? Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God Is Real, has a chapter called Permission to Doubt. Hmm. And it's based on the verse in Jude that says, have mercy on those who doubt. So there is a doubt in scripture, which is the result of double-mindedness and sin and willfully refusing to submit to God. But there's another doubt, which is, I don't know. I, I want to believe I. I'd like to believe, but I, I've got questions. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Parents, I urge you, when your kids come with questions, don't suppress the questions. Don't browbeat your kids. Say, you know, that's a good question. Let's get answers for it together. And then you can really help them on the path of truth. And you can't stuff those doubts. They will eventually surface if you don't deal with it. And I remember when I was in my 20s and wrestling with doubts myself, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that I found a community where I could just express them. And I grew up in a home where I could express them. And my parents mm. were never threatened by our questions. And so I'm, I'm just very grateful for that. And I know that there are a lot of evangelical kids who don't experience that. And so I, I have some some empathy for, you know, Abraham when he talks about that. I, it's hard for me to imagine John Piper being that way, but I don't know. I didn't grow up in his home. But again, I think a, a lot of people feel that and often don't find that safety. So I, I think that's a valid a valid point that he brings up. Let's let's move on to what I think is one of the, the toughest Christian doctrines that, that's out there, and that is the doctrine of hell. No, None of us likes to think about hell, but yet it's a reality. It's one that Jesus talked a lot about. But Abraham Piper, you know, he really takes us on. So here's what he has to say. Two millions of people think they believe in a literal hell, 
Sadly, yes. But here's something fun. Almost none of them do. Not really. Even the most abrasive fire and brimstone preacher doesn't really believe in a literal hell. Here's how we can tell. If they allow themselves even a single banal luxury, they're proving they don't believe. How are you going to take your family to Outback after church while millions of people are burning alive? Do you know how many people begin their eternal torment while you eat that soggy fried onion? Like 480. That's on you. No, if hell's real and literal, it's a frontline situation. The few faithful fighting to protect the rest of us from the pit of fire we're heading towards. Nobody who really believes would take a break for trivialities. Can they read a novel or watch TV? Can they go out for a nice dinner? Can they take a long weekend in the mountains? No way. Unless they don't give a shit, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt. There are people who try to take things that seriously, but it's psychologically impossible. A true believer wouldn't even be able to hold down a job. How are you gonna spend time phlebotomizing or whatever when people are falling into the flames right now when you have the lifeline? If a supposed hell believer is a functioning member of society, most of them are, thank goodness. They don't actually believe. Their core humanity won't allow them. Okay, so Dr. Brown, does does Abraham have a point here? I mean, about hell, that if we really embraced, if we really thought about hell, we really wouldn't be able to function as normal people. What do you say? Yes, yeah, so number one, I agree with much of what he says, but then number two, as in the first, have some disagreements. So let me let me first say where I agree. In the 1980s, I preached a message called Four Things That Christians Don't Believe. And the Christian, the, the four things were God, salvation, heaven, and hell. And my thesis was that if we truly believed in the God of the Bible, if we truly believed in the power of salvation, if we truly believed in heaven and hell, we would live lives differently than we live. And the fact that we are so complacent, the fact that we don't even bother to share the gospel with our neighbor uh, that we think is going to hell, but we don't even bother to share the gospel with them. The, the fact that we're, our emotions go up and down more based on what happened in the sports world or the stock market or the latest news flash than, than what happens to, to people's souls, that indicates to me that we don't really believe a lot of what we say we believe. The people that really do believe, they, they are much more in prayer. They are much more in anguish of heart. They are, they are much more uh, open to share the gospel. They're much more willing to make sacrifices to reach others with the gospel. And there are plenty of such people in America and around the world. That's, that's why many people leave the comforts of America to go around the world to reach those who've never heard the gospel because they genuinely believe people are perishing. So when he points out the hypocrisy in much of the American church, I don't doubt it. I, I've written about it for decades mm -hmm. and warned over it and searched my own heart to, to see where it's in my own life. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there is an understanding of hell which is, is not necessarily Dante's Inferno. In other words, that we know that God will judge righteously, that we know there must be a payment for wickedness. We know that this world can't be all there is, that there must be something to set things right. And, and we trust that God will do what's just and fair. And there's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance. So sometimes we're in prayer and, and, and agonizing over the fate of the lost, and we grieve over it. We mourn over it. But then we also celebrate the goodness of God, and we also enjoy our families. In, in other words, we are, we are people who are complex in our humanity and in everything in life. There are sad times, and there are glad times. So on the one hand, yeah, there is hypocrisy because we preach it, but our lives don't give evidence that we believe it. On the other hand, those who really do believe it and reckon with it, recognize there's a rhythm of life. And Jesus himself, who certainly took eternal realities seriously, 
We know in scripture that he'd also tell his disciples, hey, let's just come away. And there are even times of joy and celebration in God's presence. So it's both and, not either or. But I think of what Leonard Ravenhill used to say, died in 1994 at the age of 87, was a great revivalist and man of prayer. And it's on his tombstone, are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? So if Abraham's video gets people thinking more about the consistency of their lives, then good, it accomplishes something. Hmm. I think he's right, though, and I think that's a good point that you make, that I, I think a lot of believers don't really think about hell, and we don't think about eternal realities, and we get way too comfortable with the fact that we're saved, you know, right? <laughs> we're saved, oh, yeah. and, and our neighbor isn't. And it's, it's heartbreaking, I think, sometimes our, our lack of concern about the lost. And so, I, you know, I appreciate, in a way, him bringing that to the forefront and making, I mean, for me, it's convicting even to say, how much do I live with that reality in the forefront of my thinking? But I think we have to admit, it's still, it's a, it's a tough one. Hell is just, it's a tough doctrine to deal with, and entire books have been written on it. And I think it's one that Christians do well to wrestle with and to entertain those questions from unbelievers. But let's move on to another one that he takes a shot at, and that's the Bible. I mean, the most sacred book to Christians, and yet he says, hey, it's got some really horrific parts in it. So should we really be teaching this to children? Here's what he says. You want to know one of the silliest things about being raised devoutly evangelical? Children are expected to read the Bible. If that doesn't seem weird to you, stick with me for a second. You might think of the Bible as, for God so loved the world, or that one emotionally lucid moment Paul had when he wrote about love and now everyone reads it at their weddings. But those are the boring parts, to a kid anyways. While other kids are learning to read with comics or whatever normal parents have around the house, here fundy kids are, six, seven, eight years old, devouring stories of Jezebel being defenestrated and then eaten by dogs, or Judas's bowels bursting out, or Noah's sons laughing at him when he was passed out drunk and naked, or Lot's daughters who got him drunk and f***ed him so they could have babies. And those are just a few highlights off the top of my head, decades later. The good book is full of children's stories like these. It's basically Game of Thrones, except if you don't read it, you go to hell. I almost forgot about all the times I went back to Song of Solomon so I could read about breasts. I'm thinking maybe the message of God's word didn't land on me like it was supposed to. Hey, if you're deconstructing, good for you. There are a lot of serious thinkers out there that can help you navigate this stuff. But if you just want to roll your eyes at how weird it all was, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Stick around if you want to. Hmm. Again, it's, it's hard to listen to him speak so irreverently about scripture. And honestly, if, if you read the story of Jezebel and you know what she did to the prophets of God, her getting thrown out of a window and killed doesn't seem that awful. It, it seems like exactly what she had coming to her after all the people that she killed and tormented. At the same time, those stories in the Old Testament yeah, they seem weird to, I think, somebody who's just glancing over the top of it like he is. Let's talk about some of those things he brings up. Why, why does God put these sort of shocking, in some ways, stories in the Bible? Yeah, on this one, I really think he's, he's missing it from, from beginning to end. First, the Bible's about real life. The Bible is not just some little cartoon book about a, a lamb walking across the field and a deer in the forest. I mean, it's about real life. And real life is dirty and messy and painful. And if the Bible didn't deal with these issues and didn't tell stories, even that, that embarrass some of the biblical heroes, then we'd be criticizing it. We'd be saying it just sanitizes everything. It's not realistic. It's, it's of no use. Doesn't deal with human depravity. And you know, so we'd be we'd be attacking from that level. A second thing is the Bible doesn't glorify these things. 
Hmm. And in other words, it talks about Jezebel, this very wicked woman who caused tremendous suffering uh, in the people of Israel and was responsible for, for many, many deaths herself, as you said. It, she's thrown out of a window. And then when they go to bury her later, they find that dogs have eaten just her, her hands, feet are left. It doesn't present things the way a modern movie would with all the gore. It never celebrates the gore. Mm-hmm. It, even, even when it's talking about sexual sin, it doesn't do, do it in a way that titillates your interest or, or, or causes some kind of vulgar thoughts. It tells the story and says, and there are, consequences, there are really bad consequences. This is real life. This really happened. We can really learn from it. Thirdly, there is age-appropriate teaching. Obviously, if you have a kid that's a voracious reader and just, you know, it's seven years old, is going to read the Bible cover to cover, they're going to have more questions, although they're not going to understand a lot of what they're reading. But the fact is that any responsible teacher is going to teach in an age-appropriate way. Look, even if you're teaching someone what Paul writes in Romans, you're not teaching an eight-year-old about it just because it's beyond their understanding. To, you know, so you break it down into simple principles. And, and he knows that as well. You know, and, and as for Song of Solomon, isn't it wonderful that the Bible can celebrate human love? Hmm. Isn't it wonderful? And, and even there, it's not in, in some deeply sensual way, and, and, and the image is, is, is put in, in ways that's anything but sensual. In other words, it's not some you're, – you're not reading pornography. You're reading beautiful poetry and love expressed in beautiful poetic terms. But we're always saying, oh, the Bible's against sex. No, the Bible's against sexual immorality. The Bible's against sex outside of wedlock. Sex itself within the context of marriage is a gift from God and something beautiful and also the means that he gave us to procreate. So it's beautiful that we have something in the Bible celebrating the beauty of human love. If that wasn't there, that would be criticized. There's a reason that people prize the Bible. There's a reason that people risk their lives to get the Bible into different countries. There is a reason literally where there are certain parts of, of, of the world where they can't get their hands on a Bible. If they get one and they've got 50 people in the congregation, they, they rip it into pieces so that they can each take different parts and read it. It continues to bring words of life. It continues to transform. And the amazing thing, you take like the teachings of Jesus, a little child can understand them and a great scholar can understand them. That's the depth and beauty and wisdom of God's word. And he doesn't just take aim at just the Old Testament stories. He also takes aim at some of the New Testament, and in particular, two books of the Bible, Revelation and Romans. And I think he's missing it on these, but let me play it, and then we'll discuss. What book in the Bible is the most overhyped? I'd say Revelation, because people try to make it seem, I don't know, real when it's just an old man's dreams and he keeps telling us about them and a dragon was there and a serpent was there and a beast was there and jesus was there and he was spitting people out of his mouth okay john okay oh and i'd also say romans is tied with revelation for most overhyped jonesing for the apostle paul is like saying kerouac is your favorite author sure go for it but the rest of us might be letting it affect our opinion of you well that was cathartic now you go Hmm. Two things came to mind when I heard this. One is revelation, it being not reality or reality. You know, it reminds me of Paul when he said, well, if there's no resurrection, then we're the worst to be pitied. However, if there was a resurrection, 
then everything that we believe and that we've given ourselves to will turn out in the end to be worth it. So I feel like, yeah, you're right. If it's not true, if there's no resurrection, if there's no second coming, then yeah, revelation is, you know, some old man's dreams. But he doesn't know that. And I don't know how he can claim to know that. Um, Secondly, when he talks about Romans, I'm thinking of, I used to do a lot of music. In fact, you and I played together once because you came to speak where uh, uh, I was yeah. doing a, a youth ministry at the time and um, and I was leading worship and you, you jumped in, took the place of the drummer and you led worship and it was really, really fun. Um, but just that experience that I had, I remember my drummer, he had grown up in a Christian home and he had gone off to music school and had rejected Christ. And then he came back and he was drumming with me. And one of the nights after we had led worship somewhere, and I didn't realize this was his spiritual condition, he didn't know the Lord at that point. And he said he came home and there was something in one of the songs that, that took him to Romans. And he stayed up all night long reading the book of Romans. And he said, Julie, for the first time, I understood grace. And... The next morning is when he became a believer or or overnight reading Romans. He became a believer for the first time because through the book of Romans, he understood God's unmerited favor towards him. And so when Abraham Piper talks about this book that I know has radically changed somebody I know personally, and this was like over 20 years ago, and he's still walking with the Lord, that bothers me because I know that these books are so powerful. How do you respond to what he said? Yeah, again, this tells me more about Abraham than it does about the Bible. When you talk about the book of Revelation, there's a reason that it's so stunning to people. There's a reason that there's so much interest in it. There's a reason why it continues to fascinate. Mm. You know, go ahead, write your own book and and see if millions of people will read it and study it. It, it's, It's what is known as apocalyptic literature in the ancient world. So it's painting everything in, in terms of symbols and cosmic powers and cosmic battles. And you can read it in your generation and find spiritual application and meaning. And then the ultimate triumph of, of God's kingdom and the ultimate destruction of the wicked and, and the bringing in of an eternal age of, of blessing and joy and peace forever. Uh, and, and the testing and suffering through which we go. You can read it today. You could read it 2,000 years ago. You could read it 1,000 years ago, and every generation finds it relevant. As for Romans, Romans is stunningly brilliant. I've been, I've been studying Romans for almost 50 years now, and I'm still amazed at the inspiration that Paul received from God and the genius of Paul in writing what he does, and where he lays out the state of the human race, where he shows how both Jew and Gentile alike have sinned or under God's judgment, where he lays out the incredible revelation, as you mentioned, of, of grace through faith, where he talks about the, the life in the spirit and yet the battle we have with the flesh, when he lays out God's amazing purposes for Israel and how it's Israel's rejection of Messiah that opens the door for the message to go to the Gentiles, and then the practical teaching in, in the end of the book and when he teaches us to overcome evil with, with good, and when he shows us the purpose of authority and, and how walking in love fulfills the law, and it's, it's, it's just mind-boggling. And then his use of the Old Testament in the midst of it. And again, I don't mean to insult Abraham here because I've agreed with some other points that he's made, and only God knows his heart. And perhaps it was his dad preaching a lot on Romans that made him bored of Romans or, or reacting against Romans. 
But for him to put these books down would be like, for me, uh, meeting with Albert Einstein as a young man, and he shows me I've discovered something amazing. It's E equals MC squared. And I thought, that's stupid. That, that reveals my ignorance rather than, than Einstein's genius. And it could well be that, that unless we humble ourselves before God, that he's not going to reveal his treasures, that he's not going to show us the beauty of what's there. But if we humble ourselves, then we'll, we'll be amazed by the wisdom, by the beauty, by the truth of God's word, and by the power of these two books, Romans and Revelation. The one thing that I, I think Christians can appreciate about Abraham, we've been disagreeing with him and pointing out what we don't uh, like about some of what he said, but I do think at the same time, he highlights things in evangelicalism that are just a little bit off. And, you know, mm -hmm. for example, he talks about how when he was a kid, he was told that there were satanic messages in rock and roll. And, and you know, you can't, yeah. you know, there are things that are evil within rock and roll music for sure. But I mean, sometimes it's, you know, the whole backtracking thing and it got weird um, when I was a kid and people were always trying to find these hidden messages that was there. And he also talks about short term missions. And I think he has a point here. Uh, let me play this and then we'll discuss. My son had to wear a tie the other day and I asked if he needed help. And of course his answer was, I know how to tie a tie, Dad. Which was news to me because he's never really had a reason to wear one. I remember exactly when and why I learned to tie a tie. I was 10 and I was going on a missions trip by myself. What's a missions trip, you ask? It's a white savior's evangelical vacation that other people pay for. And the org I was going with required dressing up on Sundays and whenever interacting with the public. Thus the need to tie my own tie. This requirement was alongside memorizing the KJV, not talking to girls, and running a mile every morning. Oh, <laughs> guess where the missions trip was? too. One of the darkest places on earth. Florida! <laughs> That's right. Ten-year-old me and my cohort of other pre-adolescents took the message of Jesus and his ghastly demise to Orlando. I mean, if I had to guess who was going to get bathed in the blood of the lamb, I would put my money on Florida, man. Why am I even telling you this? It's not even a story. Tying a tie, missions trip, Florida. Ah, I don't know. Suffice it to say, I look dapper as f doing my DC Talk puppet shows. <laughs> All right, this is getting way too niche. I gotta go. All right. There's, there's parts of that, that that I have to say I laughed at and I had to say, yeah, I do wonder what the wisdom is of sending a 10 year old on a short term missions trip to Orlando, Florida. And we have gotten as Christians way behind these these short term missions trips. And some of them are fantastic and they change people's lives for a really long time. But I know I've told my children when they go, you uh, you know, people are paying money for you to have an experience so that for the rest of your life, you can have a heart for the places you go to, but you owe them something by going because they could spend that money a lot better and a lot more, you know, as far as if we're talking about actually getting missions work done just by giving the missionaries some money and they could use that to, to get a lot done where they're at and they're there long term. So I, I think he has a point with these things. And I think the way that often it comes off as a white savior, I think some of that's valid. What do you think, Michael? It, well, it's, it's not valid from my own experience with young people going out on short-term missions trips. Again, everybody's raised differently. Is, is he giving the impression that, it, that it's a norm in evangelical homes that you have to run a mile in the morning? I, I mean, it, it's this exaggerated picture, and people can look at it and think, oh, that's, that's how it was. And I, I have no idea if he was 10 and went on a missions trip to Orlando. I mean, that's, that's his recognition. Maybe it's accurate. I don't know. But everyone I know that's going on short-term missions trips 
and not a lot of people have done it over the years. The, the whole thing is to go in, into another part of the world that's different than your world, where people have less than what you have, and to go and serve them and, and to have your own heart and mind opened by it. Most of the people that I know that are full-time missionaries around the world today, and some have been on the field for decades, most of them went on short-term trips earlier on, maybe as older teenagers, or early 20s, you know, some as children, but they went on these trips and, and that's, what, that's what lit a fire in their hearts. Like, I've got to go help these people. I got to leave what I have and go serve these people and find out ways where I can make their life better. I think everyone, young and old, should go on at least one missions trip to get them out of America, to get them out of their own culture. And at the very least, create a, a hunger in your heart to pray for these people, maybe contribute financially to help improve their lives, maybe support missionaries that are outreaching them if not going yourself. So I know, Julie, that I can often put things through the lens of my own experience. And I tend to be a very positive, optimistic person, seeing the best, as much as I'm always warning about where things are at and the dire state of America. I mean, uh, overall, I'm tremendously positive, optimistic, and, and seeing the best side of things. So I'm sure that people have had bad experiences. I'm sure that, that people have gone and the big effect on them is like, I'm so grateful now for my for my iPhone, (laughs) these superficial kinds of things, but done rightly, this is really effective. So again, it's this exaggerated picture that's being painted and then people join in and mock along with it. It's like, okay, let's get the 10,000 positive stories out there. Let's get the million great testimonies out there. Let's get those going viral as well, because that's what it's going to take to balance the message. Hmm. And I do, I don't want to, by what I said, indicate that I'm against short-term missions. I'm not. My kids have been dramatically changed by their short-term missions experience and have had life-changing experiences. And I, I think of one of the places that we went where we worked with orphan kids and we are still supporting some of those kids mm. and they've grown up a lot and it's been fun to watch them grow up and and to know their environment and where they live and what it's like in, in their country. And so I am for short-term missions, but at the same time, I also know this is a big question with Missy all just discussing uh, how little sometimes we put towards long-term missions and we're spending yeah. so much money on short-term. So I think that part of it, there, there are some valid things. And you do have kids from the U.S. going over and staying in hotels and calling it a mission strip. And uh, sometimes it's, it's more of a, a glorified vacation. And so I, I think it just depends. And I think we need to be critical in the way that we we evaluate those at the same time. I think they're, they're highly valuable. This brings us to our, the last one that we're going to look at, and it's on whether or not Abraham Piper is an atheist or not. And I have to say, when I, when I listened to this one, my heart broke for him. But this is him describing why he's not an atheist. If you've ever quit a religion, did you become something else? Because you don't have to. I didn't always realize this. I grew up fundamentalist Christian, and for years as I was quitting, I asked myself, what am I now instead? Am I a mainline Christian? Am I a progressive Christian? Am I horror of horrors? An atheist? I didn't want to land anywhere. And then my curiosity and my reading expanded. I resonated with Camus and the tension he famously noted. Does that mean I'm an absurdist? I couldn't stop underlining Seneca or Marcus Aurelius. Does that mean I'm a stoic? If so, I'm not a very good one. And then along came Alan Watts. Me, am I supposed to incorporate Eastern philosophy too? 
Who has time for this? So I read the Tao Te Ching and that made so little sense, I knew it must be true. Does that mean I'm a Taoist? What's the difference between that and Zen? How does a Westerner become a Buddhist? What does become a Buddhist even mean? I don't know any of this. I don't know enough to be anything. And that was my breakthrough. I don't have to know enough to be anything because I don't have to be anything. I don't have to say what I am. I can be nothing. I'm nothing. And this is so much of what I hear from Abraham is, hey, let's not be so serious. Let's all lighten up. Let's not think about eternal realities because they probably don't exist anyway. And so here he is, someone who hasn't figured it out. And he's basically telling everybody, it's okay to just, let's just blow it off, kind of. Let's let's not even try to figure it out. And I, you know what? It, it, it broke my heart because I can remember when I was wrestling with my faith and for me, I came back to whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there's nothing I desire but you. And realizing that there is nothing else out there once you go beyond Jesus. And I, and I think it's interesting that he's honest enough to say, I, I haven't found anything. And I know there's people listening that because of so much of what I report on, and they've experienced so much disillusionment in the church, so much pain in the church, that they're like, I'm done with church. And when it comes to their faith, they're like, I don't know. And so I, I feel like what Abraham's doing in just saying, eh, let's just lighten up and forget about it, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. But where is that going to lead us? So speak to that, Michael. Yeah, and, and my heart goes out to Abraham. He may not want our sympathy. He may say he's, he's very happy, but hey, I'm not mad at him. I'm praying for, for God to really open his heart, reveal him. I don't know if he ever really knew the Lord, if he was raised in Christianity, and never really knew the Lord, or if he once really did know the Lord and had an experience with God, again, only God knows, and I'm not sitting here as his judge, but life doesn't allow you to just be nothing because there's too much pain, there's too much suffering, and there are too many questions, and there are too many issues, and if, if we're no different than a bug, I mean, you think of it, if, if there is no God who created us with purpose, and we are just the, the random uh, end results of a freak evolutionary process, then, then in reality, we're no different than a bug. And there is no problem of evil because a human being killing 10 other human beings or an earthquake killing 1,000 human beings is no different than a, a spider eating a fly. It's just what happens and survival of the fittest or you know, just freak things. Something in us says, no, there's got to be more. Something in us says, okay, this is it. You're getting older and this is it. You just reproduce so another generation could reproduce and another generation could reproduce. That, that, that people, people know there must be more. And, and God put it in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3, says, it says that God has put eternity in our hearts that we would seek him. And, and that's, that's why people are questioning. And that's why people are struggling. Even the so-called religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who've dropped out of church and have no religious affiliation, many of them are superstitious. Many of them are getting into new age type things or witchcraft or other occult things. It's, it's normal because there's something inside of us telling us that there has to be more. And then the dreams inside of us that never get realized and fulfilled mm -hmm. in this world and the, the injustices that never get righted. There's, there's this understanding that there, there must be more. And what I would say to those who've been hurt or have questions 
or their faith didn't seem to line up. Again, it's why I wrote the book, Has God Failed You? Because to someone feels as if he did, that I would encourage them to seek God with every fiber of their being and to say, if you're really out there, if you really put me here, if there's really a purpose for my life and the lives of others, I must know. Nothing is more important than knowing that. Let that cry, let that question rise from your heart from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep as you're working through the day and doing what you're doing. If you're really there, I need to know. I need to understand why I'm here and who you are. And if you're not there, then you're not going to respond. Or if you're an indifferent God, then you're not going to respond. I was being driven to the airport from Pittsburgh a couple of days ago, talking to the driver, 55 years old. His family was Baptist. He himself was not Baptist. And he said he prays daily. He believes there is a, a God, but that no one can really know this God. And it's more like a karma kind of thing for him. And I said to him, do you believe that if God created us, that he can speak to us and reveal himself? He said, yeah, but who knows? This one says this, and this one in the Bible says that. I said, have you ever asked God, God, if you're really there, would you make yourself known to me? He said, no one's ever asked me that question, and I've never thought of it. 55 years old. Hmm. He said, the way you asked it, he said, no, I've never done that, but I'm going to. So... Don't believe what someone else says. Their testimony may influence you, get you thinking, but you have to know God for yourself. You know, we, we talked about hell and difficult issues, but the thing that I know, 49 years of walking with the Lord, he's incredibly patient and incredibly long-suffering, and he doesn't treat us the way our sins deserve. Otherwise, the whole human race would have been wiped out a long time ago. And the ultimate expression of who he is is that he sends his son to die on the cross that whoever will can believe in him and receive eternal life and, and be spared from coming judgment. And, and God is not desiring that anyone perishes. So whatever realities there are about judgment, hell, these difficult questions, the ultimate revelation of God in scripture is that God is love and that he sends his son to die for us. I would encourage folks to look at Jesus and listen to Jesus and find out who he really is and when they do, it'll be life-changing. And I love that you bring up that God said, if, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. So I, I do just thank God for your ministry and for your encouragement along those lines. And I just appreciate your willingness to take the time and to answer these things that Abraham Piper is saying. So thank you so much, Dr. Brown. Great spending time with you again. Yeah, and, and Julie, let me say this to you. Uh, I have appreciated your integrity over the years and your pursuit of truth. I know it's cost you a lot, hmm. but it's it's how we have to live. So I know you want to honor the Lord and, and pursuing truth has been painful and difficult, but but in the end, it will help. In the end, it'll it'll bring healing. In, in the end, unless we recognize what's wrong, we can't fix it and, and do what's right. So bless you for your ministry as well. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. And thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. Again, if you'd like to find me online and stay in loop with everything that's going on with The Roy's Report, just go to julieroy's, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. Also, please subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review and then uh, share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about it. Again, thanks so much for joining me. I hope you have a great day and God bless.